0: The History of the Great War premium episode number 15. This will be the first of a two-part series, discussing the experiences of those under the occupation of the Germans during the war. This episode will cover the occupation in the west, where Belgium and northern France came under the control of the German occupiers. The second episode of the series will discuss the occupation of the lands in the east, as Germany and Austria-Hungary occupied vast swaths of formerly Russian territory. By the end of 1916, the Germans had occupied hundreds of thousands of square kilometers of land. One of my sources puts it at 525,000, although I don't have any verification on that. Determining how to occupy these areas efficiently, with both a minimum of German resources, while still extracting the maximum amount of resources from the territory occupied, was a problem that the Germans would never truly solve. Each area had an administrative apparatus that was set up by either the German government or the army, and while the goals of these were the same, they tried to achieve them in slightly different ways. The goals were to pacify the inhabitants before moving on to full-on, full-blown economic exploitation. This exploitation came in many forms, with factory machinery being moved from France and Belgium back to Germany, grain and oil taken from Romania, and lumber, food, and other natural resources taken from Poland, Lithuania, and Latvia. This plunder allowed the Germans to continue the war, especially the food, without which Germany and Austria-Hungary probably would have been starved out of the war before 1918. None of these actions would endear the populations to their German occupiers, And because of this, there would be constant friction and unrest between the occupiers and the inhabitants. While the German occupiers were often harsh, and there were atrocities, which we will discuss, they should not be confused with the German occupiers of the next war, especially in the East. With that fact in mind, let's jump into the situation in the West. The Germans entered the war without any real plans for long-term occupation of territory, at least while the war was active. Nobody thought that the war would last very long, and therefore, there were pre-war regulations concerned with moving an army through enemy territory, and how they would use it to help the army, primarily through requisitioning provisions, tools, vehicles, animals, and other items. However, there was not much of thought beyond that. If the war had been short, this is all that would have been required. Peace would have been made, and if there were territorial acquisitions, they would have been moved into an assimilation mode. Occupying territory for long periods while a war is still going on requires a different set of actions. Because of the lack of planning, what the German decisions feel like is somebody trying to figure out a very complex subject as they go along, and nowhere was that more obvious than in Belgium. Belgium was the first country to find itself under German occupation, and also the one that was most publicized by other countries. From the very beginning of the war, the Entente used it as a subject for propaganda, to drum up support for the war, and they did this by keeping the situation in Belgium in the public eye. This played a role in the creation of the Commission for Relief of Belgium, which was set up in the opening months of the war by American millionaire Herbert Hoover, yes, the future president. By mid-October, it was taking care of two-thirds of the food needs of Belgian citizens. This was critical, because if the CRB had not been formed, the Belgians would have been in a very rough spot. Before the war, Belgium only grew 25% of its food, and even what was available was drawn down heavily by the German requisitions. The movement of the CRB's food was organized by Americans who had very large amounts of money to facilitate the process, and also they had connections in London to get the food through the blockade, which was no easy matter. Overall, there would be 5.7 million tons of food shipped through the CRB and into Belgium and northern France. However, this did not solve all the problems for the Belgians, because their issues went far beyond just food. Right from the start, the German army began to decimate Belgian infrastructure and economy. During the war, two hundred and fifty thousand businesses would close, a hundred and six iron and steel factories would be completely dismantled and shipped back to Germany. Almost the entire interurban and streetcar systems would also be dismantled and shipped off for German purposes. All of this was done while at the same time the appointed leader of the German occupation, Governor General Bissing, trying to get the Belgians to cooperate. You see, Bissing hoped that at the end of the war, Belgium would fall under permanent German rule, which was a war aim high on many German lists. However, he found it difficult to gain support while the army and other German government entities were dead set on exploiting the country as much as possible. He was also stymied by the continual passive resistance by the Belgian people. They basically refused to contribute in any way to both the German war effort and to the Belgian economy as a whole during the war, even when they were heavily incentivized to do so. They could do this because of the food provided by the CRB. Since the Germans often only had food really as a carrot to try and get populations to cooperate, and the CRB was providing so much food, they had to find other ways to get the Belgians to work. And this was done over the course of the war, with tens of thousands of Belgian workers who were deported to Germany over the course of the war. The forced labor of the Belgians mostly came about in late 1916, and the introduction of the Hindenburg Plan. Germany had to have more people working in war industries to meet the lofty goals of the program, as we discussed on a recent Mainline episode. And the number of people required were simply not available inside Germany, so they had to find more workers. They did this in two ways, using prisoners of war, which were mainly Russians, and conscripting civilian workers. Obviously, impressing civilians to do war work is very much illegal, a fact that the Germans were well aware of. To try and get around this fact, they began in 1915 by simply asking for volunteer workers, promising money and other rewards, but they were met with silence. By the middle of 1916, things got more serious. Walter Rathenau, the head of the War Raw Materials Department, would say that, quote, The solution to the Belgian worker problem can only be achieved by ignoring international prestige questions, so that the 700,000 workers in Belgium are made available to the home market, even if it means the American aid in the form of the CRB will end, end quote. Bissing would fight again the idea of forcing the Belgians into the factories, and he used all kinds of reasons to try and fight it, first citing international law, before moving on to more practical objections. The biggest of these was that if they went forward with a plan, unrest in Belgium would skyrocket, which would then require more German troops to keep under control, robbing those men from the front when every one of them was valuable. He also pointed out that the workers would probably be of marginal value, since they would resist working. None of these objections worked, though, and on September 13th, he was ordered to start providing the laborers for export into Germany. Not yet deterred, he went to Pless on September 19th and raised his objections to the assembled civilian and military leaders personally, which again did not work, and the deportations began. In total, 60,847 people would be moved to work camps within Germany. When they arrived, the goal was to get them to sign a contract to once again become voluntary workers. However, few would take this step voluntarily. Step into the world of power, loyalty. So, come give us a listen. We'd love to have you. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. They could have used outright force to get the Belgians to work, but the Germans were hesitant to begin that kind of treatment. There's no going back from that decision. So they told the camp commanders to try and get people to work "...through stringent discipline and strict enlistment for necessary work in the camps. The prerequisites will be laid down such that the Belgians will greet every opportunity for well-paid work outside the camp as a desirable improvement of their condition." So if they signed on as a voluntary worker, they would experience much better conditions with better food and living quarters." Even with all these processes in place, only about a quarter of the deportees would sign the contract, and those who did not were in for some pretty harsh treatment, which began as soon as they were taken from their homes in Belgium. It often took days to get to the camps, often without food in crowded rail cars, and then they had to wait for days or weeks inside what were former POW camps, and even in winter they often did not have proper clothing, blankets, or facilities. They were also supposed to get 1,745 calories per day, but many camps either could not or would not provide that amount of food. Some commanders used it as a way to get more people to sign the contracts, others simply did not have enough food given to them due to shortages. Even the Belgians who got to the factories were found to be wanting when it came to performance. After a month of deportations, only 20% of the Belgians were actually working consistently, and by February 1917, the deportations were stopped. Even with the short lifespan of of the process, it did irreparable harm to the international public relations, and it completely cut the legs out of any sympathy that the Germans may have garnered from neutral nations on the international stage. All of this for just a few months of a very small number of workers and a huge logistical headache. The official Belgian report of the deportations states that 3 4% of them died, 5.2% were maimed or permanently disabled, 6.5% had scars from ill treatment, 4.4% suffered from frostbite, and 35.8% were ill when they returned to Belgium. Overall, the policy was a complete failure and that failure was paid for by the Belgian people who suffered through the ordeal. At the end of the race to the sea in 1914, the Germans also found themselves in command of large portions of northern France. This encompassed roughly 2 million French citizens. The people in these areas faced several hardships for the next four years. The first was simple. They were concerned about their family members in the French army. It was often impossible for those in occupied territory to get reliable and consistent news from the rest of France. This meant that it was possible that they would not hear news of family members in the French army being either dying or being wounded or just being okay until the end of the war. There were also soldiers trapped behind the lines, often hidden in the homes of civilians. Some brave citizens, mainly women, would organize networks to smuggle these soldiers out of the area, but this was often hard and dangerous work, and because of this, not all the trapped soldiers were lucky enough, and instead some of them spent the entire war behind enemy lines. There was also instances of harsh treatment and the killings of civilians, although this did not happen everywhere. It bears repeating that many German soldiers, officers, and government officials treated the French and Belgian citizens under their command completely acceptably, but unfortunately this does not make up for the harsh treatment by local groups of soldiers and the official practices sent down from Germany, like the movement restrictions, food requisitions, work details, and just wanton acts of destruction that were all too present during the war. We will discuss each of these items in turn. The first and critical piece of German policies in France revolved around the movement restrictions placed on the populations. Every person in the territories received an identity card, which specified that person's name, date of birth, marital status, and the state of their health. Men of military age were issued red cards, while everybody else got white ones. No travel was permitted without a pass, which often were only attainable through large amounts of money. Both of these policies were the same as those used in the East. However, in the French occupation zone, since it was both smaller and better documented and structured than in the East, it was easier for the Germans to control. Local records were often far more complete and up-to-date, which helped in finding all of the citizens and thereby keeping them under control. This also gave the German governor-generals and army leaders, who handled the areas directly behind the lines, immense control. It allowed them to do things like move upwards of 30,000 people out of some of the cities and out into the countryside in 1916, and force them to take part in agricultural labor. This solved some of the labor shortages, and also reduced the amount of food that the Germans had to transport to the cities, but it sort of sucked for those people who were exported. Some of the forced movement can be justified from a military perspective. There were many French citizens right behind the lines— However, that does not come close to justifying the amount of people who were relocated for just random reasons. Often this forced movement was in conjunction with the next two policies, the requisitioning of food and the implementation of forced work details. From the very beginning of the war, German occupation took a huge amount of food from northern France. About four-fifths of the 1914 grain harvest was sent back to Germany. The only way that the people in the area were able to stave off starvation was because the CRB expanded their area to also cover northern France in March 1915. Until that point, the citizens were reliant upon the whims of the German occupiers for food. These types of requisitions did not stop after the first harvest, though, and for the entire war, the Germans tried to control and exploit as much of the French agricultural production as they could get their hands on. In some areas, this just meant requisitioning food at the end of the harvest season, but in others, the Germans believed that they could execute on farming better than the French. This occurred in areas like the Ardennes, where the Germans thought that they could get more grain out of the area than the French farmers, and they took over operations completely. This generally resulted in disappointing results. For example, in the Ardennes, the Germans were able to produce about a quarter of what the French farmers said they could provide to the Germans voluntarily. Their requisitions did not end with food either, and almost everything was liable to be taken, especially over the entire course of the war. Over the years, the houses all over northern France were slowly emptied of items. Over the years, the houses all over northern France were slowly emptied of items, like precious metals, and then anything metallic, even leather and cloth, were eventually removed. All of this would add to the hardship of the French. With heating fuel almost non-existent in the later years of the war, schools even had to close in the winter, due to not being able to heat the buildings. Just like in Belgium, the people of France were also forced into being laborers for the German war effort. However, they were often engaged in a different type of work. This might involve the creation of sandbags for German defenses, or even digging trenches that the Germans would later use. All of this was done by work groups, which would work long days until they basically became too ill or exhausted to continue, at which point they were rotated out and new people were brought in to begin the process again. This was a serious cause of friction. First, because it was illegal, and also because every person knew that help they gave to the Germans might end up hurting their own countrymen. The trenches or sandbags that they were creating could help the Germans to quite literally kill their family members or relatives in the French army. To counteract this resistance, the Germans took prisoners from the towns as a way of forcing those left behind to work. And these groups of prisoners would grow in number as the years wore on, with large numbers being taken in 1915 and 1916. They also started the practice of shuttling these working parties to different occupation zones, which got them away from the people in places that they they knew, allowing the Germans to have an easier time putting pressure on the people and getting them to give in to German demands. The final cherry on the top of the cake for the French was the destruction of the French countryside. There was a certain amount of destruction that was to be expected, especially after trench warfare began. There was going to be a large swath of French territory that was completely obliterated by four years of artillery, fire, and fighting. However, the Germans took this to a new level in a few different instances. The biggest one was before their retreat to the Hindenburg Line in early 1917. After the decision was made to retreat to this line they had to decide what to do with the land that they were giving over to the entente the german military leadership wanted to hinder the entente advance and make it as unpleasant as possible to occupy the territory and therefore they began to plan for a massive scorched earth campaign the order sent forward would say that quote it is necessary to make extensive preparations for the complete destruction of all rail lines and all streets bridges, canals, locks, localities, and all equipments and buildings that we cannot take with us, but that could have any use at all to the enemy. The enemy must find the countryside completely sucked dry, in which his own mobility is made as difficult as possible." This was going to be a massive campaign of destruction, and there was resistance from some German commanders. Crown Prince Ruprecht was particularly vocal, partially because he was a crown prince and he could do it without any real consequences. He would write the quote, "...I would like to have resigned, but I was told it would do no good and would not have been approved anyway for political reasons, since it would have given the impression abroad of a rift between Bavaria and the Reich, so I had to limit myself to refusing to sign the Order of Execution." Overall, 2.5 million kilograms of dynamite were used to, to complete the destruction, and it would be total, with nothing left behind. We finish out today with a bit of a side note on the Italian front. On this front, the Italians captured a piece of territory right at the beginning of the war. From these areas, thousands were evacuated into other parts of Italy. Cadorna's goal was to get them out of the way, and anybody living within 500 meters of the amorphous zone of military operations was relocated. Some were moved just a few miles away, but more ended up all over Italy, from Sicily to the French border. A new office was set up within the Italian Supreme Command to handle all the various civilian matters in the newly occupied areas. Overall, the official Italian policies were pretty lenient, actually, other than the aforementioned evacuations. Food and health care was provided to the Austrians, even those who had family members in the Austrian army. Even the Slavian press on the other side of the line gave them some credit for taking care of the people trapped behind the lines. However, there were still some instances of tragedy. Suspicion on both an official and personal level was high that the Austrian citizens trapped behind the lines were finding ways to help the enemy. This resulted in some units taking matters into their own hands. In one instance, an Italian unit rounded up men from half a dozen villages, who were then accused of betraying positions to the Austrians and sheltering Italian deserters. These men were lined up, and every tenth man was killed. This resulted in the deaths of six men, and this was unfortunately not the only instance of this kind of activity. Overall, the treatment of civilians in the West was a black eye on German and Italian leaders. However, it would be worse in the East which we will discuss next episode.